Dr. Antonio Tito is the founder and CEO of Rethics, the world's first liaison research organization. Antonio, welcome to CC Life Science. Thank you so much for, for your time and, and efforts to make this happen and connect the different life science companies uh, within the same ecosystem. So did I say that right? Rethics? Is that how Red you pronounce your company? That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. And we got to give a shout out, as always, to Lamar Ashar. I'm going to give him an associate producer credit because he's connecting me to so many people these days. <laughs> so for background, tell us about Redics and describe what you mean by a liaison research organization. Oh, absolutely. First of all, I also want to extend my, my, my gratitude to Lamar. So Redics, we, we like to consider ourselves as a liaison research organization because we're targeting... Um, a sector in the healthcare space that is a growing sector and requires a, a, a very concierge type of uh, attention, specialized attention for running their clinical trials and research studies and doing it in a way that allows them to generate data that can be used for the investors to determine, okay, to what extent have they de-risked their investment? And when can I jump in with a major investment? I'm talking on as if I'm an investor. And if I was to jump in right now with an investment that will allow this, the company to run a phase two trial in the United States, will I be able to have more of a de-risk approach since they've already collected data from a phase one study? And so we approach, we have, a, we're approaching that as a liaison because we believe that Retics is in itself the name researching for ethical ways of running and executing clinical research studies. And the, the concept behind, you know, Retics is that we can, we have found a way to leverage the ICH, the International Consortium Harmonization, to run the clinical trials uh, in Mexico the, with the possibility of extending those trials to the United States and with the visibility of an FDA pre-IND meeting, we can very nicely disclose that our approach uh, is to run it started in Mexico and then use that data to support IND enabling studies, IND enabling the, the package that will be then submitted to the FDA. Of course, this requires that we pass an internal review committees. Uh, also in Mexico, there is an initial assessment from the COFEPRIS, which is the Mexican regulatory authority that will determine whether to move forward on a go or no go type of uh, assessment. And we prepared the companies to pass that assessment. And the idea is that the, the, there are many, many different advantages and also cost benefits for the companies. Because right now, for instance, we are planning a clinical trial for a phase one study in Mexico starting in January. And that trial, the cost of the trial with the management cost and everything that very much required to, to run the trial is no, no more than $300,000. Uh, 
And that type of trial with 24 patients in the United States will be easily on the old purpose, like $1.4 to $2 million, right? The cost differentials is one advantage. Another advantage is that we are targeting diverse populations from the beginning. I mean, the Hispanics represent 65% of ethnic, ethnic groups from, of different races, of different ethnicities. That gives us an advantage in that when we submit for the FDA, we already are compliant with our new guideline for, the, for diversity as well. So those two aspects and the aspect of the risk in the investment by obtaining safety profiling toxicology type of data, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics data, will give us the, a cutting edge in the field and allows us to diversify the portfolio of different investors interested in de-risking their investments in uh, multiple startups as well. Nice. Okay, so a couple things, many things in there. First of all, significant cost savings to do it this way. I'm interested in maybe some people want to know a little bit more about what the ICH is, the International Council or Consortium for Harmonization, and how that interacts with the FDA. Let's just take those that one thing for now. Talk a little bit more about the ICH, because I had not heard of it until I spoke to you previously. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So the ICH is what governs the uh, different FDA regulatory guidelines. That's important to to know that for any clinical trial, whether it's run in, in Mexico, in the US, or anywhere else, has to go has to have very clear technical requirements for pharmaceutical for human use. So it's called the International Council for Harmonization of Technical Requirements. <laughs> the ICH. So it's an international organization and bringing together different regulatory authorities and pharmaceutical industry reps, representatives from different countries. And they develop and harmonize guidelines and standards that, that ensure quality, safety, efficacy, and regulatory requirements of the different pharmaceutical products. The goal of an ICH is to ensure that there is global registration and approval of new drugs. So by harmonizing the technical requirements and all the regulatory processes in very key countries. And Mexico is actually one of those countries since 2021 is a member of the ICH, uh, but includes other countries like the US, Europe, countries in Europe, Japan, and others, right? So these ICH guidelines, it covers different aspects of drug development, including quality, safety, efficacy, and things like pharmacovigilance and good clinical practice. So the way that it interacts yeah. with, the F, with the FDA is that the FDA is an agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You, you know that, right? So the USHS, the USDHS, is responsible for protecting and promoting public health. So the way in the context, FDA has a crucial role in evaluating, approving, and regulating drugs within the United States. But that means that the, the, it has to be governed, the FDA has to be governed by a global type of uh, organization because right now with globalization, you know that you can be in the U.S. one day 
Another day you can be in Europe, another day you can be in Asia. So regardless of where you are, if you're taking a drug and you buy it in, in another country, that drug has to be the same quality as in the U.S. as well. So that's like the concept behind the ICH, how it ensures it works closely with the United States Department of Health and Human Services so that FDA is compliant with the global type of regulation. Yeah. So you are working with labs in Mexico under this ICH, and Mexico has its own regulatory authority, which, if I understood you, is really making sure that those labs are doing things under those guidelines as well. They're not necessarily evaluating the output that goes to the FDA, but they're evaluating GMP sorts of things, right? Yeah. So there is a, something called yeah. the GCPs, the Good Clinical Practice. Yeah. And that's as an international commission that certifies different doctors and sites that are involved in clinical research. Everybody, whether you are in the U.S., Germany, Spain, Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, you have to take your GCP to, be, to participate in any clinical trial. So the, the thing here is that apart from the GCPs, there are other standardized protocols that pharmaceutical companies have applied for many years. Uh, in fact, if you check on, online on clinicaltrial.gov and you just uh, search for Mexico, you will see hundreds of trials uh, that are run in Mexico by different uh, big pharma companies. All the big pharma companies are in Mexico. And what we've done is that uh, we've formed a, a, a team of a division of like quality assurance people that what they, their whole role in, in the company is to ensure that the, these guidelines that are in Mexico are also compliant uh, with the guidelines in the U.S. So let's say you have a research facility that has, is, is under a certain norm of coffee priests. We, what we do is that we look at that norm and we synchronize that norm with the norm that is in the U.S. And then we see what are the gaps, right? What is missing? Because sometimes what you may have better scrutiny in Mexico than in the U.S. for certain things or vice versa. And then what we try to do is try to educate the, the, the different parties, whether it's the sponsor, the research institute, uh, on ways to, to improve upon that synchronization, right? So yeah, that's it. There are different ways of doing that, but I just want to give you the peace of mind and, and to your listeners as well that this is a common practice in the global research space to, to run clinical trials in Mexico. One last thing, what's not common really is to start clinical trials in Mexico. And I think, and, and you can see the, that, ref, that is reflected only that only 3.5, 3% of new drugs are generated out of Mexico. And most of that has to do with communication. It's important that we have this type of channels, like the one that you are promoting, Chris, to teach people that it's okay to start your clinical trial in Mexico. You can more than happy approach the FDA about it, be very transparent with the FDA always, but don't let the communication gap, not only the language, but also the culture and the paperwork is <laughs> very extensive in Mexico. Don't let that stop you from generating data 
that you can later use for submitting to your investors and obtaining more funding. Nice. Okay. So give me an example of maybe an academic investigator or a small company that would take advantage of this. What's a typical scenario for someone to come to you and say, we want to do a phase one trial in your incubator? Sure. I'd like to go ahead and give a little ad, ad <laughs> to my first uh, company that is uh, working together with us, uh, Arteries. Arteries is a cardiovascular uh, life science company that uh, developed its own drug, a combination drug. Uh, of three different molecules that uh, each of these molecules are FDA approved. They have successfully raised initial capital for running their preclinical trials. And now they are at the stage where they have reached significant data, to uh, toxic toxicity data in their preclinical models to demonstrate that they can proceed with, an e with a human study. They have approached the FDA about their drug, and everything seems to be moving forward in terms of running IND-enabling studies in the U.S. And what, what we're doing in, in, this, in our team is that we are submitting all that information to Coffepris as part of a regulatory package and, and determining what is the input from Coffepris. Now, what do they think about whether they can move forward and how they can move forward with an infer, a first in man uh, clinical study. So far, we have heard from our key stakeholders and KOLs in Mexico that they have enough data to move forward with a first in man study. But we need to wait for Coffee Priest to give us that green light. And we hope that that will be the case for so that we can start that clinical trial by the first quarter of next year. And that's just one example. Another company that we have is a medical device company. They, we've helped them uh, obtain their market code. In the U.S., we have provided them with the guidance to get IRB approval. Uh, also, this company also has a U.S. IRB approval for their diagnostics division. As you can see, the, the knowledge that, that we have and you know, in Mexico is also applicable for U.S. IRBs and U.S. FDA because it's all governed under the same ICH. Yeah. So you now you've mentioned small molecules and medical devices. So a pretty broad range of testing available, seemingly any kind of phase one preclinical mm -hmm. testing that you could imagine doing here or anywhere globally is mm -hmm. available through your organization. That, that is correct. That is, we will first like to get into a gap analysis type of situation, an initial feasibility study with the client to make sure that they meet the criteria of coffee price and as well as in the what their state are in development in the US FDA. And then we'll be very honest and frank and say, you might need some other studies to get to that level where you can apply for coffee price. So let us know what is your level of interest in terms of us preparing you in that process until you, you get your enough data to justify moving forward. But for certain studies, like for the diagnostics division of this company, where uh, it only requires blood collection from different disease cohorts, that's, that's considered a low-risk specification, and that you can do with an IRB study in the U.S. and Mexico. 
without needing to go to the FDA. And likewise, for a 15K uh, uh, equipment, a device that you already have obtained approval for in the US, you can easily transfer that into, the U into Mexico very simply because you have all the data <laughs> that you've that you've used, uh, you you generated to demonstrate that it works and is similar to other predicacy, other predicate devices out there in the market, and you've generated that information for your filing for the FDA. All that information can be then translated by our team, and we can pass it on to Coffee Priest, and and the process is is similar to the US as well. But is you you get the advantage of tapping into sometimes virgin markets <laughs> where there is absolutely no other alternative to that device or to that diagnostics in Mexico or Latin America. So you have a winning hand in le in leveraging tactics to negotiate with like commercializing agencies in those countries. Whereas in the US, you have more competition. It takes longer to get your market traction. Um, so it's, it's a win-win situation. And right now we are running an, another Mexican coffee priest uh, filing uh, for a regulatory sanitary approval of, for instance, for a device that has received its class one exempt uh, in the US. And we're taking their devices to Mexico. And the process takes at most three months to complete for three devices it's going to cost them at most $20,000 for to, for them to get their regulatory approvals. And that's with our costs added to them as well, added to it. It's a no brainer, right? <laughs> to have that. Yeah. Of it's not just a, an opportunity for testing novel therapies and devices, but commercializing a device already approved in the U.S. through Latin America. Exactly. And now with the dollar changing in the in Mexico, there is going to be a lot of in like flow happening, traffic between Mexico, the U.S., Latin America. Uh, or there already is uh, a lot of import-export. In fact, they're saying that uh, Mexico is going to be the next, you know, quote-unquote, major manufacturing country <laughs> compared to other existing other countries that are providing manufacturing services to the US because the 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 people are very well educated they're highly uh, motivated and they already well experienced english speaking people in mexico that can not only do the manufacturing but also commercialize their technologies yeah. So, you I mean, that brings up a good uh, skip to my next question. I spent, I don't know if I've mentioned this. I certainly haven't on this podcast, maybe on my other podcast, spent seven months living in Mexico 20 years ago. And I can attest to the ingenuity and motivation of the Mexican people when I ran across some problems. But having said that, let's talk about approaching these trials differently and in different cultures. What are the things that come up for people and how do you adapt to those? Because you mentioned it at the top, I think. And that, that's a very good point. And thank you for asking that question because at the end of the day, our goal in this industry is to serve uh, humanity and to provide patients with the greater access to medicine and technologies. And for that reason, you have to be culturally fluent 
in if you want to do your business in other countries, even in the United States. Hispanic populations is poised to be close to 40 percent uh, projected in the next you know, 10, 15 years in certain areas specifically where uh, there's a lot of high level, high amount of uh, Hispanic populations. So one of the things that the, the cultural difference is also based on social economical factors. So in Mexico is the healthcare ac access to, to good medicine is usually governed by, by a lot of public institutes. So you have the social security system, the IMS providing that type of help support, but the customer service is unfortunately in need of improvement. So when you approach your healthcare population uh, with a clinic, with a private clinic, with a private research institute that has connection with clinics, and you tell them that you can get state-of-the-art, top-launch type of treatment and support as a, as a human being and do it fast, do fast turnaround, quickly get them what they need. They don't have to wait too long in the waiting lines. So optimize that system, right? That patient care system. If you do it that way and you build those alliances with the clinics, the local clinics, people will love you. <laughs> and they don't even ask, in fact, <laughs> it, for you to pay them. In fact, there is a law in Mexico that prevents, that prohibits you from paying people to join your clinical research programs. Uh, the only way that you can incentivize is by providing perks like Uber Drive or food for certain, like money for food. But you have to demonstrate that this is actually used as stipends and not as cash incentive for these for this, for this people. So any money involved in payments to participants is for the purpose of getting them to the clinic or enabling them to participate in the trial as opposed to a reward for just showing up. Exactly. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not yeah. a problem because over there, I was previously a director for a CRO that was operating out of Mexico. And we used to get... Easily, the clinical sites that were under us the, used to exceed their patient recruitment goals. In fact, to the point that the FDA came <laughs> once to see the location. Why are you recruiting 80 patients, enrolling 80 patients for a, an oncology trial when we only ask you for four patients? And they pass with... Uh, flying colors. <laughs> the FDA was like, we really need to put you guys in the white list <laughs> for the sites that, <laughs> you know, and again, it all depends on your ability to to touch the human heart. And, and that's the same for anyone running clinical trials in the U.S. or Mexico. So everybody talks about diversity, right? So some trials, only 2% uh, of Hispanics are represented in those trials, especially in oncology. We need to change that. <laughs> That's unacceptable, right? By coming to Mexico, you can work the, your relationships. You can work with us to build relationships with key stakeholders and KOLs in Mexico. That If you build really good relationships, they're going to help you in reaching out to your public, to your Hispanic population in the U.S. So you're going to be able to meet your 
recruitment goals of uh, diversity if you start or at least you extend your clinical trial in Mexico. So it's, it's a, a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's let's wrap up a little bit talking about an app that you're developing. What are you still working on it and what is the intended application? Yes, so right now we have an initial the what's called development undergoing and it's still in the beta phase for people that want to sign up for it is on redix.com, r e t h i x.com. So you please contact me Dr. Tito at redix.com to to sign up for it. So basically, what, what that app is, is going to be doing is looking at the holistic approach of clinical trial. From the very beginning of a study design, let's say you, you have a new discovery in, the, uh, <clears throat> sorry, in your research uh, institute, and you've received approval by your tech transfer office to take your technology out into the commercial market, and you have partnered with us to help you get your innovation out. We are, as part of the app, what it's going to be, it looks at all the data that you have, implements AI, and determines what is the best pathway in terms of the study design, the type of uh, protocol that needs to be developed for better for commercialization for your device, for your device or your drug or your diagnostics. We're still in process of developing and training the AI, so that takes a while and funding. So until we can have that uh, develop, fully developed, the way we are approaching is that we, we're building an incubator here in the medical center that allows us to connect over 700 lifestyle science startup companies in Houston, medical doctors, clinical diagnostic labs, and other researchers to share ideas and share uh, common knowledge. And, and this incubator will facilitate access to clinical data that will get generate traction for IRB approved studies in Houston. So it's, it's a major, it's like over 4,000, no, 6,000 square feet facility right at the heart of the medical center. And we're partnering with QBio to establish that incubator specifically for the clinical diagnostics and clinical research space uh, in, in Houston. So all that knowledge is going to be um, added as part of the training uh, for our app. So uh, until then, we'll be able to formally launch <laughs> it on to, to, into the public. So. Nice. Dr. Antonio Tito, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really thank you for sharing this. I think it's going to be an eye-opener for a lot of folks. Thank you so much, Mr. Squeeze, and really appreciate your time and efforts to uh, bring the, the biotech community closer. And, and again, thank you for your audience as well for taking your time to listen. Uh, looking forward to servicing um, humanity together. I like that. My pleasure. <laughs> 